When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At approximately 11 o'clock this evening, John Lennon arrived at the emergency room at the Roosevelt uh, Hospital. He was dead on at the time of his arrival. Numerous resuscitative efforts were made after his arrival in the hospital, including transfusions, surgical procedures, other procedures. But in spite of the effort of many physicians and after many procedures, we were unable to restore the life of Mr. Lennon. Good morning, everyone. I'm Tom Brokaw. This is today, December 9th. I'm here with Jane Paul, and this entire half hour will be devoted to the murder of John Lennon, ex-Beatle, one of the best-known musicians and most influential people of his time. As you heard Dr. Stephen Lynn at Roosevelt Hospital in New York City say, Lennon was shot and killed at about 11 o'clock last night outside his apartment building. With us now are people who knew John Lennon in different ways. David Marsh of Rolling Stone, Barbara Grostrark of Newsweek magazine, and Lori Kay of RKO Radio. She was the last person to interview John Lennon yesterday. I want to ask you about getting the urge to make music again. Now. Oh, it came over me all of a sudden, love. I didn't know what came over me. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like you were possessed. Right? Yes, I was possessed by this rock and roll devil, you know. <laughs> December 8, 1980, a deranged young man assassinated John Lennon. That same day, an RKO radio crew recorded what would prove to be Lennon's final interview. RKO's Dave Sholin and Laurie Kay interviewed John Lennon and Yoko Ono in their apartment at the Dakota in New York. On December 8, 2023, Laurie Kay's memoir, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, is set for release. Congratulations on the book. It's out now, and I was lucky enough to read a press copy, and it's fantastic. It's so exciting for me because it's my memoir. It's the story of my early rock radio-related life and career wrapped around what tragically turned out to be John Lennon's last day on the planet, December 8th, 1980, which is also when I co-conducted the RKO radio interview with him and Yoko at the Dakota mere hours before he was shot and killed. This is Janet Fitch. This is Jeff Jackson. This is Dana Spiota. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit.
Rock is lit. Season three. Hey there, lit listeners. Welcome to season three of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, and also a recent finalist in the PopCon Indie Podcast Contest in the category of art and culture podcast. Rock is Lit is written, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout out to this season's intern, Hannah Stewart. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. Drop me a line at ChristyAlexanderHallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating, and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt. The Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. Ladies and gentlemen, the show starts in three, two, one, go. In this episode of Rock is Lit, we're deviating from the world of fiction to explore the riveting reality of rock and roll. Laurie Kay is here to talk about her brand new memoir, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview. Get ready for exclusive behind-the-scenes tales, intimate encounters with rock royalty, and a symphony of stories that will transport you back to the golden age of rock. Laurie Kay has worked in radio from the time she was in her very early 20s, first as an intern, then as an on-air reporter and anchor. She wrote and co-produced numerous radio rock specials for RKO, including RKO Presents the Beatles, later expanded and retitled as The Beatles from Liverpool to Legend, and the top 100 of the 70s, before moving on to write Dick Clark's weekly radio countdown show and syndicated newspaper column. Laurie then moved on to television and film as a writer, producer, and casting director, where she still works today handling both creative content and line producing for docuseries pilots. Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, published by Fayetteville Mafia Press, Tucker Diaz Press, is her first book. An aside before we continue, we may be talking nonfiction in this episode, but in the spirit of Rock is Lit's claim to fame as the first and only podcast devoted to rock fiction, I encourage you to check out some of the novels that feature John Lennon in some capacity such as St. John Lennon by Daniel Hartwell, The John Lennon Affair by Robert S. Levinson, and John Lennon and the Mercy Street Cafe by William Hammett. You can read my short story about John and Yoko, Shadow of Shiva, which was published in Solidago Literary Journal in 2017, on my website. And now, let's turn up the volume and welcome Laurie Kay as she reads a short excerpt from the opening chapter of Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, and later shares more of her memories about her life leading up to and during John Lennon's last interview on December 8, 1980. Chapter 1. Imagine My Lead-Up to Lennon. On December 8, 1980, I was overflowing with excitement, anticipation, and disbelief as I approached the Dakota Apartments on Manhattan's Upper West Side. I was there to play my part in John Lennon's one and only U.S. radio interview following the release of his and Yoko Ono's brand new album, Double Fantasy. And the voices in my head were telling me that this was without a doubt about to become the best day of my life that I could ever even begin to imagine, and that I was truly the luckiest person on the planet. Visions of thousands of screaming Beatles fans packed into Dodger Stadium so many years earlier swirled through my brain like milkshake in a blender, and I could barely keep myself from swaggering down the sidewalk as my associates and I approached the security booth area 
right outside the Dakota's entrance. I'd flown out one day earlier from the West Coast as part of our three-member RKO radio team, along with an executive from Warner Brothers Geffen Records, and although our RKO trio had already worked together on a number of attention-getting network radio rock specials and interviews over the past few years, including heading off to London just the year before to hang out with Paul McCartney and Wings, this would be an entirely different ball game. After all, we were on the verge of meeting up with someone who'd literally disappeared from the music business for the previous five years, John Lennon. John had been hunkered down in the role of ultra-happy house husband and attentive father ever since his 18-month-long lost weekend, the time during which he was, by his own admission, miserably separated from Yoko and living in Los Angeles, and he hadn't recorded or released any new music in at least the five years since. But now, Double Fantasy, the new album created with his often critically reviled wife, Yoko Ono, was his way of opening the door to the 80s and a whole new era. No one else in the world could even begin to imagine how it felt to realize that we were about to become the only American radio gang chosen to help John and Yoko usher that era in. This is Lori Kay, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thanks for joining me, Laurie. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Congratulations on the book. It's out now, and I was lucky enough to read a press copy, and it's fantastic. And we're going to talk at length about that last interview, but I want to get some backstory first. I know you are a huge Beatles fan and have been pretty much all your life. I mean, you went to see Hard Day's Night when it came out in theaters in 64. And you were at Dodger Stadium in L.A. in 66 and saw the Beatles, which makes this lifelong Beatles fan's heart patter. I can't, I can't imagine what that must have been like. Well, I'm sure it was very noisy. 
It sounded like all teenage girls screaming like crazy. And even though I was an elementary school kid, I was screaming like crazy too. And we were sitting way up at the top and could barely see them anyway, could not hear any music. So it wasn't really a concert. I don't consider it my (laughs) first concert. It was an event. It was, yeah, it was an event and it was an exciting thing to be be at anyway. Hey, listeners, like most of my fellow podcasters, I don't record interviews in a studio where both host and guest have the opportunity to use top-notch equipment in a controlled environment. As such, we're at the mercy of the internet gods, who sometimes like to monkey with Zoom connections. That's what's happened here. You're going to hear some glitches on Laurie's end that I wasn't able to fully clean up. Please don't let that keep you from enjoying the episode. I promise it won't take you long to decide that it's so well worth putting up with some connection hitches to hear Laurie's fascinating story. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. Well, tell me a little bit about your history with the Beatles. Do you remember when you first heard them or when they first grabbed you? Well, yeah. See, I started listening to music as a toddler. And when I got a transistor radio and it came with the earplugs that you could put in in your ears all night, like I did as a, you know, three year old and listen to top 40 radio in those days. And even though I primarily listened back then to top 40 hits from Elvis Presley and uh, Little Richard and then the Beach Boys and finally the Beatles. It was so exciting because I fell in love with the Beatles right away. And then eventually they were on the Ed Sullivan show. So I got to see them. That was extremely exciting. So that really turned me into a Beatles fan. And it continued even through their breakup period. Then I became a fan of all of them individually and everything they all did on their own. Right. Well, I can totally relate to that. I remember when I was nine years old, I think. Do you remember that Dick Clark made-for-TV movie, Birth of the Beatles, that came out in 1979? That was my first exposure. I remember watching that on my father's TV set. Even though that wasn't the real Beatles, I was enraptured. And so I remember I had a little friend whose father had Meet the Beatles, the album, and, and I would go over to her house all the time and say, get your dad to play that album. And then finally, I saved up my allowance, and that was the first album I bought with my own money. So... Like you, I've been a huge Beatles fan all my life as well. You grew up in L.A. during the 60s and 70s with all that amazing music around you and going to concerts every chance you got. And as you said, music's always been a big part of your life. Do you think, in part, music was a form of escape for you because you had a less than ideal home life? Absolutely. Music was exciting and it was a good way for me to ignore my dysfunctional family upbringing. It helped me deal with the criticism that I received from my mother and eventually the nasty man she married, who was to become my stepfather. Then after the transistor radio played such a major part in my life, I started babysitting at a very early age. And even though I was only making 50 cents an hour, I eventually was able to afford my own stereo system and start being able to buy my own albums too. And that was very exciting because it helped me get through junior high and high school by being able to relate to music. And um, also thanks to my friends and their supportive families. And music has obviously directed and played a huge part in my life and career ever since. Speaking of music being so important in your life, there was one concert in particular that really changed the direction of your life and put you on the road to working in radio. Tell me about the 1973 Rolling Stones concert at the Forum in L.A. The main thing about it, even though the concert was incredible, was that thanks to KMET-FM's super cool DJ B. Mitchell Reed, otherwise known as The Beamer, I was encouraged to consider an on-air radio career which thankfully I was eventually able to do within a few years, and it totally worked out. Um, But the whole concept of winning tickets on the radio station was amazing to me. It gave me a way to cut school for the first time to go pick up tickets at the station, KMET, and that's how I met B. Mitchell Reed. 
and was asked to come into his disc jockey booth and talk to him while he gave me tickets. And the first thing he said to me when I opened my mouth was, with a voice like that, you need to be on the radio. So I eventually was. You know, when I read that in your book, I thought, oh, kindred spirit, because I won tickets to a stone show myself when I was a teenager. It was they were on their Steel Wheels tour. And I was not put, I was, actually, yes, I was put on the radio because they came to the office where my mother was working and I was a part-time employee there as well. And they did put me on the radio. Nobody told me I should have a career in radio though. So <laughs> that's where we deviate. Well, you should do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. So that's good. Walk me through from when that radio DJ told you that you should be on the radio to when you actually did start working in radio and then eventually landed the gig interviewing John and Yoko. Well, I won those amazing Rolling Stones concert tickets right up in the front row of the Fab Forum in LA. Uh, it was so very cool. I won those um, my last year in high school and I was uh, 17, about to be 18 in, in a couple of few months, actually. And what happened was surprisingly, I began to work at KFRC AM in San Francisco by the time I was just about to turn 21. And I, I started out as an intern. And then a few months later, I got a job in the very same newsroom as news editor. And then after doing that for a while and, and becoming a writer of rock radio specials, everything from RKO Presents the Beatles to you name it, I did so many. But what I really wanted, of course, was to be on the air. And KFRC was such a huge radio station, Billboard's basic number one top 40 station for several years it had been. So I couldn't go on the air right away there. I had to go to another station first. So the program director, wonderful Les Carlin, helped me get a job, basically got me a job at what turned out to be the Midwest's number one station, AM radio station, WOW. And so I took a job there. And he said that I'd only have to stay there for six months and he'd bring me back to the West Coast. And I was actually only there for less than five weeks. I got a job in Seattle at a station I loved, King AM, and was on the air there as a newscaster for almost two years. And then I came back to San Francisco to go on the air at KFRC as a newscaster. But before I did that, I got a call from the music director, Dave Sholin, who said, guess what? I want you to come to London and interview Paul McCartney with me. And I said, wow, of course. And that's why I left Seattle, you know, in a, in a flash. And that was in June of 79 that we went to interview Paul McCartney, which was wonderful. And then I came back, went on the air at KFRC as, you know, a major newscaster. And within about a year and a half in December 80 was when we got the opportunity to go to New York and interview John and Yoko. So that was what led to it. I'm going to back up a little bit here. I want to hear more about the Beatles special that you did because you were, what, 20, 21 years old when you got that special to write? And that was huge. I was just 21 and I had just gotten the news editor job at KFRC and I was asked to do a favor by Dave Sholin. He said, you know, you're from LA. When you go back home, would you pick something up at KHJ for me? And KHJ was the top 40 AM station that I listened to the most as a kid. So I went as soon as possible that very first weekend and went and picked up what he had me pick up, which was a box of Beatles interviews that were done at the station in the early 60s and Beatles-related people interviews as well. So it was so very exciting. I brought them back. And the first thing Dave said to me when he looked through the box was, wow, 
this is going to make a great special. And he turned to my news director, Joe Interante, who was wonderful and was so impressed with me talent-wise, even though I basically just started there a couple months before as an intern. And he said to her, so Joe, what do you think about doing a Beatles special? And she said, oh, it's going to be wonderful. It'll be great for RKO. And he said, well, would you like to write it? And she said, oh, no, I'm too busy. I have a news department to run and I have kids to take care of. And she said, but Lori's here. She'd do a great job. And I almost passed out right away. I couldn't believe that she was recommending me. And I basically got the job right away, started immediately doing research and work. And for the next uh, year or so, wrote the special, did all kinds of research, amazing interviews as well, and co-produced the special with uh, Dave Scholin and our amazing producer-engineer, Ron Hummel. And it turned out to be the longest radio special on the Beatles ever done in the country. It was 14 hours, and it was called RKO Presents the Beatles. And within the next year and a half or so, we got to expand it to 17 hours for syndication, and they let me name it what I wanted to from the start, which was the Beatles from Liverpool, the legend. Well done. You know, what made the biggest impression on me when I read that in your book was the fact that your mother refused to listen to the special. I know that you didn't have a close relationship with her, but ouch, that had to have hurt. It did. It didn't surprise me, though. That was my mother. She just didn't pay attention to my accomplishments when I was in school and didn't pay attention to my accomplishments when I had a career either. And as she said, she wasn't a Beatles fan. She didn't have time to listen to it on the air in L.A. And um, basically what she was saying is she didn't care about me and my work. So that's the way it goes. Yikes. You mentioned interviewing Paul McCartney. You interviewed another Beatle before Paul McCartney, though. I think it was 1978, you interviewed George Harrison over the phone. So tell me a little bit about that. What was it like interviewing the quiet Beatle over the phone? I interviewed George over the phone because I was writing a special for RKO Radio that was syndicating it along with Drake Chenault called Top 100 of the 70s. And George, of course, had songs that were in that. So that was supposedly the main reason that I was able to interview George Harrison. But my main reason was, oh, we can put part of the interview in the um, elongated Beatles special. It's going to be great. So getting to talk to George on the phone was amazing. He was still so friendly, and he was so excited about the fact, not just that he had had his son, Danny, a couple months before, but that he had just gotten married. And that was really exciting to him, too. And it was incredible. He was so loving about the son and the wife wow. and being with his family. And, of course, talking to both Paul and John later on, they were the same way. So they had a lot in common. George wasn't particularly interested in going out on tour now that he's got Danny at home and the wife at home, Olivia. I think you said he was more interested in gardening. He wanted to grow flowers and fruits. That's what he told me. And I thought that was fabulous. They turned black, sky ripped apart. Rain freeze, lit down to my heart. Cracks in the leaks, the floorboards could lie. About to go down, I'd almost forgot. All I got to We are at the interview with Paul McCartney. Now, I cannot imagine, well, I can't imagine talking to any of them, but not only are you talking to Paul and Linda McCartney and the latest lineup of Wings at that time, it's your first time in England as well. What was that like, interviewing Paul and Linda, being there in his office in London? Tell me about that. It was super cool and exciting to put it mildly. And as it's 
so quoted and described at length in my book, especially the trip to London to meet up with Paul and Linda and their latest lineup of wings for the release of Back to the Egg. June 1979 just meant so much to me because of him and being able to sit with them both in their London office and and Denny Lane and the band and the two new band members as well and being there with Dave Sholin, the, the music director, and Ron Hummel, our producer-engineer. It was, we just all had an amazing time and not just because we got to hang out in London and be at Abbey Road and, and all the other things that we got to do, but mainly it was the hours we spent with Paul and Linda and the band. It was, it was incredible hearing about their music and their relationship and everything that they did together, which also involved drugs. It was just something that I still think of to this day. And I look back at the things they autographed and gave me and that we talked about and think about the picture that we took together and and Paul kissing me at, at the very end. And it was like going back to Dodger Stadium again as a little kid, except now I was next to Paul and there was no screaming <laughs> and I could hear him and he could hear me. It was great. The description of that encounter in the book will make any Beatles Paul McCartney fan pea green with envy because it, it just sounds like with all three of the interviews that you did with George, John, and Paul, you almost formed a bond with them. There was chemistry there. What was your impression of Paul and Linda's relationship? I thought they had a wonderful relationship. They obviously cared so much about each other, and Paul was so excited at the ability of getting to work with Linda in Wings. And because she was his best friend, so he wanted to have her with him if they went on tour or were in the studio or ever. And, and that was wonderful. Well, I know that uh, in addition to a copy of Linda's photography book that they signed, they also signed a 45 of the Wings songs, Silly Love Songs. We're not recording the video, listeners, so you can't see this, but here's my 45 of it. My best friend signed it to me because she had it and I didn't. And I used to go over there and say, please play that song again. And so she just gave it to me. So I still have that 45. And you still have your 45. Oh, absolutely. And I always will. <laughs> yes. Not only did you interview these three Beatles, but you also interviewed George Martin, who could be the fifth Beatle. He was producer of the Beatles. Yeah, and I, I would like to say that I did not only a number of really long rock radio specials, but when I was an on-air newscaster at KFRC, I also did news feature series. So they were multi-part short specials. And my favorite one of those was George Martin, the one I did with him. Following the interview I did with him when his bio came out, his memoir, and um, it was very exciting. He was just wonderful to talk to and hear everything he had to say about hearing and meeting the Beatles for the first time and working for them, with them for years and the tail end of their time together as a band. And he was just an amazing person. And I love the way he autographed his book for me, too. He was very complimentary of you about the Beatles special, the RKO special, wasn't he? He loved it. People say I'm crazy. Moving on to the interview with John and Yoko. 
That interview was his one and only U.S. radio interview following the release of his album with Yoko, Double Fantasy, because John had virtually disappeared from the business at that point. So I have to ask, how did you get that gig? Well, John and Yoko were actually only going to do one radio interview once Double Fantasy had been released. They did a couple of radio interviews before it came out and when they were recording. But once it was released, our RKO team was the only ones that they were going to talk to. And so it was very exciting for me and Dave Sholin and Ron Hommel again to go, also with Bert Keen from Warner Brothers Geffen Records. And it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe that we were the ones chosen. So that was very exciting. And John's whole attitude during the interview was just so caring and friendly and funny and complimentary. It was an incredible experience. Yoko did some preliminary work with you all before choosing the date of the interview. And it's a very interesting way to go about choosing the date. What did she do? Well, they were supposed to be in Hawaii and the West Coast during that time period. And when they decided that they were going to do the interview with us, they wanted to find out the best time to do it. So Yoko had a representative from her astrologer give us a call and find out our birth dates and birth times and use that information to pick the date that should be the one that we all got together on, and the completely crazed and horrifying fact is that the date they picked based on all of our birthdays was December 8, 1980, and that's one reason that I've felt guilt all these years since. Well, it wasn't just your birthday that was the deciding factor. There were other people in the team as well, but I'm sure intellectually you know all that, but it doesn't do a thing to ease the emotional sense of the guilt. So that's it's completely understandable. Thank you. You and your RKO team arrived from the West Coast to New York City the day before the interview and check into the Plaza Hotel, which is significant because that's where the Beatles stayed on their first U.S. visit when they played the Sullivan Show in 64. Talk about a surreal moment. And I know you were told not to ask John about the Beatles or the past, which had to have been a little problematic, because how do you not ask a Beatle about being a Beatle? How did you prepare, not just the questions, but yourself mentally as well? Well, I just made a point of coming up with questions about what was going on with him now. And since he'd gone back to New York to be with Yoko after the lost weekend when they were separated. And it was very exciting. But also very exciting is that John himself, despite what we were told about not bringing up the past, was the one who brought up the Beatles, talked about Paul, George, and Ringo, and being with them. And it was very exciting. When you arrive at the Dakota, John and Yoko were finishing up with photographer Annie Leibovitz from Rolling Stone magazine. And I should point out that that probably didn't do a whole lot to ease your nerves because you had had a brief interaction with her prior to this. You want to talk about that? It was crappy. <laughs> she treated me nastily. And, um, All right. you know, people can read about that in the book. She took that iconic photo of John and Yoko that day, didn't she? At the Dakota. Yeah, it was fabulous. It was. Naked John with non-naked Yoko, and it's still one of the most iconic, if not the most iconic shots of them together ever. But my concern was, oh God, please don't let her come down to us doing the interview. <laughs> and thank goodness she didn't. When you got into the Dakota, you're ushered, I think, into Yoko's office, and she's not there yet. The team is there alone. What do you recall about being in the Dakota? Well, walking up the, to the Dakota was extremely exciting for me. And there were just a few people hanging out outside, which I thought was really strange. I expected there to be huge crowds because this is where John and, and Yoko were. And, and there wasn't, there were just a few people. So we went into their office area and um, waited there for a little bit. And then we were 
taken into their private office, which was amazing when we opened the door and walked in. I was struck by the beauty of the furniture and the piano and the huge white shag carpeting. And there was a coffee table that I fell in love with that was incredibly long. And up the metal legs had serpents, you know, man-made serpents winding around them. And it just the whole time I was there, I kept looking at it thinking, wow, I'm with John and Yoko with their amazing furniture. And another cool thing was the seats in front of the coffee table was where I wanted to sit. And it was a love seat. And I sat there. And then when Yoko came, she sat in a chair off to the corner. And then when John finally came in, he sat down next to me right on the love seat. I still can't believe it to this day. I sat next to John Lennon, or I should say, John Lennon sat next to me on a love seat. It was was awesome. You know, Yoko has that reputation of being difficult and controversial, but rather than being put off by her or intimidated by her, you said you felt an immediate connection to her. What created that bond, do you think? Well, I've always been a fan of hers. I really liked her musical approach and her conceptual art. And one of the things that I brought with me was my copy of her book, Grapefruit which I had had for a few years, which I got in my favorite bookstore at the time in Berkeley. And so when I showed her the book, she almost fainted. She was so excited. And when John came and he saw it, he said, oh my God, we haven't seen a copy of this in years. This is incredible. And later when Yoko said, wow, I want to autograph my book for you. And I said, great. And John said, I want to autograph the book too. Because I wrote the introduction. I would love to autograph it for you. And I felt like thinking I was so excited. And I still, of course, have that. It's my most prized possession. Amazing. That book, like you said, came out in 64. And then I think was reissued in 1970, which is when John wrote the introduction. But he also had a book come out that's 64, the very same year before they even knew each other in his own right. That little symmetry there is interesting. And Yoko eventually wrote an introduction for that book as well. Yes. So they were just great. And they were obviously so very similar, despite the fact that Yoko was a conceptual artist who eventually got into pop. And John Lennon was a rock and roller who learned about conceptual art thanks to Yoko. They were just very similar. You talked about a lot of things during that interview, politics, child rearing, of course, double fantasy. One of the things that they did talk about was their history together, how they met, and their relationship. Can you tell me a little bit about what they shared with you about that? Well, even though I did know, of course, how they met at the gallery, you know, where Yoga was having a show in London, I thought, oh, if they could just say a couple words about it, that would be great. But John went into it, the full story, you know, what Yoko said to him and what he said to Yoko and and how they just looked at each other and he knew that there was something there. And then he went right from there into their first date, which turned out to be two years later, and how they recorded that night and then ended up making love the next morning. To hear them talk about that was just it was unbelievable. I have to ask this because May Pang, who was John's lover and partner during that 18-month period that we refer to as The Lost Weekend, has a new documentary out. I've seen it, and I interviewed her a couple of months ago, and her version of that period and her version of John and Yoko as a couple is diametrically opposed 
to what John and Yoko presented to you and I think the world. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are about May Pang's documentary, The Lost Weekend, A Love Story. First of all, something that's not in my book is that I just met up with May for the second time at her promo event at a gallery here in Hollywood. I actually described my first meetup with May in New York in my book, and that was back in the mid-80s when I moved to New York. The strange thing is, two of the guys that I was working with in New York at the time at a TV production company, I was writing a, a TV show for the USA Network called TV 2000, they ended up as two of the producers and directors of the documentary. So I had been contacted and told about it a long time ago, you know, way back before it came out. It's recently released and it's a well done documentary. But who do I believe? I'm sorry. I believe John and Yoko. And the thing I know is that Yoko introduced John to May in the first place when she was hired as their assistant and then encouraged him to go off with her to LA and, and be her lover because she needed John gone for that time. And as John was very clear about saying, Yoko told him to get out. And so he did. It was great getting to meet May again, to be honest. I understand how she would look back on that relationship in the way she does. And that's not what it seemed like it was at all with John talking about how the worst part of his life was those 18 months being away from Yoko. So yes, he had somebody that he could make love with in LA and, you know, have a relationship with, but it wasn't something that he wanted to last. So it didn't. Going back to the interview, is there anything else that really is seared into your memory of what he said to you that day? Anything that came up that we haven't mentioned? The thing about the interview, most of all, was John's validation and complimentary way of dealing with all of the questions I asked, the comments I made the responses to his answer. He was so amazing to me. And as I said, he was sitting next to me on the love seat. And every time that I would say something that excited him, he would look at me and push his glasses down his nose and stare out at me on top of them and smile and say, yes, love, exactly. Or something like that, which was awesome. What do you think they were planning to do to promote this album? Were they going to go on tour? Were they just going to stay put and make more music? Did you get a sense of the direction they were going to go in? We asked about the possibility of touring. And um, John was very, very honest about saying that they had the second album finished and they were working on the third album now. And he really wanted as much of their new songs to be done so that that's all they had to do when they did go out on tour. Nothing from the past. He didn't want to have to do Beatles songs or even his old solo songs. So I understood that. And he didn't sound extremely excited about having to decide on venues because he didn't know that he wanted to go and play Madison Square Gardens, but he was afraid that if he decided to only have them play small clubs, that critics would be nasty about that and critical. What he was really excited about was the idea of going out on stage with Yoko, which I totally understood. Starting over. No old songs, starting over, moving forward. Do you have a favorite song from Double Fantasy? 
I would say Starting Over is my favorite song from Double Fantasy because it really represented what he'd been doing for the past five years since he got back from the last weekend in LA. He started over with Yoko. And it was beautiful because I could see that in their relationship, how much they cared about each other and how they enjoyed every minute they spent together and having an incredible five-year-old son at the time, Sean. Our life together is so precious Together we have grown We have grown Although our love is still special Let's take a chance and fly away somewhere alone. Okay, we've talked about how the interview was the best day of your life. Now it's time to get to the worst part of your life bit. And I know this is hard, the aftermath. When you left the Dakota following the interview, you encountered the man who would shoot and kill John Lennon just a few hours later, and I know you don't like to say his name, so I'm not going to say it either, but we all know who we're talking about. Tell me about that encounter. We came out of the Dakota, and he started asking us questions. What were we doing in there? What did we talk about? And Bert from the record company figured that he was a fan, so he gave him a copy of Double Fantasy that he had and said, oh, well, John will autograph it for you when he comes out. And John and Yoko came out shortly after because the guys were giving them a ride to the recording studio where they had a, a session scheduled. And I wasn't going to be going with them in the limo because I wasn't going to the airport like the guys were right afterwards. I was staying in New York that night. So John signed the album for that guy and then they all got in the limo and I hugged everybody goodbye. And I was so excited because we'd made plans to get together in a couple of weeks when they were going to be on the West Coast, have dinner together. So they got in the car and I waved goodbye and I was just so thrilled. And I started walking away up to my friend's office uh, that I was going to have dinner with. And the guy started following me and asking me questions and over and over and just bugging me. And I wanted to turn around and tell him to get the hell away from me. And I just didn't even want to talk to him. I mean, in a way, I felt like kicking him, you know, or tripping him just so he couldn't follow me. I just started walking really fast and hoping that he would get lost behind me. And sure enough, I turned around and he had, he, he didn't follow me all the way. And later, that's why I felt so guilty all these years, all these decades, because I didn't understand why when somebody bothered me so much and I felt so strong that he was just a big creep, that why didn't I go to the security department at the Dakota and tell them, get rid of this guy. He shouldn't be in front of the Dakota. He shouldn't be bothering people. And maybe they would have, or maybe even better, they would have looked at him and seen the gun that was in his pocket, which I didn't even see in his coat pocket. So that's another reason I felt guilty all these years. Those are a lot of feelings to carry around. Like I said earlier, intellectually, you know that you're not to blame, but I respect that emotionally that hasn't caught up with you. That would be an awful lot to carry. But even if you had told security and they'd gotten rid of him, he came all the way from Hawaii, which is interesting because that's where John and Yoko were going to go after the recording session, like what the next day. They were supposed to be in Hawaii that day. So it's, it's, um, it's a terrible chain of events, what happened. Are you comfortable with talking about finding out when John got shot? I can tell you briefly what happened. I went to dinner with my friend, my old friend from San Francisco, who had just recently moved to New York and moved in a brand new apartment. And when we came back from dinner, he was opening the door to his apartment to show me. And I heard the radio and he said, oh, yeah, I leave the radio on in case somebody breaks in. I want them to think that I'm home. 
and you know they'll leave and go somewhere else. And I was about to laugh when I heard that, and then just at that moment, the voice on the radio came out saying John Lennon has been shot and he's at Roosevelt Hospital. And I ran out into the street, caught a cab, went to Roosevelt Hospital. And it had a big glass door in front, and I looked in the glass door and saw Yoko sobbing hysterically, hanging on to somebody. I couldn't really tell who it was at that point. It turned out it was David Geffen. And I wanted to run in and tell her how sorry I was because I felt like we'd become friends and we're going to be friends for life at that point. But as I looked at her and saw how upset and horrified she was, I realized John wasn't just shot. John was fatally shot. John's been killed. And so I didn't run in because I didn't want to make it worse for her. I knew that I would remind her of the tragic event. And so I went outside to the phone booth instead and called the RKO network, which was now headed by the woman that had been my news director at KFRC, Joe Interante. And she said, oh my God, come down immediately to our office. And I worked all night doing stories and interviews. And then the next morning I was on the Today Show. Let's begin with Laura Kay. You saw John Lennon yesterday and you talked about death in a matter of speaking. Well, he did bring it up. He mentioned that if, if he were to be left alone, if Yoko were to die before he were he would he wouldn't be able to cope with it he wouldn't be able to survive and he said that he hoped to god that he died before yoko he also talked about the fact that he didn't like cult figures after people were gone i gather uh, a little bit he was talking about cult figures but uh, but lest we give the impression that he was all talking about death too you were saying he was essentially full of life and very optimistic about his future especially with his music and with his son. He said that he hoped he had many years of, of creativity. But what did you say? He, who was his audience? Who was the audience for Double Fantasy? The people he grew up with. He said, I hope the young people like it too, people who maybe don't know my music. But this is for people I grew up with, the ones who survived the 60s and 70s and are coming through the 80s. There are places I remember then I left and went back to San Francisco immediately and wrote the special that needed to air within six days, which I ended up calling John Lennon, The Man, The Memory. And it was weird because our special from that interview was originally supposed to air in February. On February 14th, it was going to be a Valentine's Day love special because Double Fantasy was a love album. Unfortunately, it became a death special, and it was all downhill from there. Well, I can't even begin to understand how difficult it had to have been for you to have to listen to that interview and write the special, put it all together, and especially in that short amount of time. You're dealing with the trauma. You're dealing with the grief. How in the world did you keep it together to get that done? It was very, very difficult. Yeah. That's all I can say because looking back, I honestly don't know. I just know that it was my job. It was going to be my tribute to John Lennon. It was the only way to go forward. So I had to do it, and I did. You have said in other interviews and in the book that you've reached out to Yoko, that you've tried to contact her, and she's not responded which is, as you've said yourself, understandable because you were part of the worst day of her life. What would you say to her if you could say something to her? I would tell her how sorry I was about that day and how I've thought of her 
almost every day of my life ever since. And I just am in incredible admiration of her and what she's done since raised Sean and just been amazing. Okay. Well, that's the beautiful message that you've got out in the world, whether or not she hears it, it's out there. I think I heard, or or maybe it was in the book, that you really only seriously began writing it during lockdown. Was that because we had time finally, or was it because enough time had passed that you felt like you were able to tell the story, or did it have anything to do with the fact that your mom had passed? A little bit of everything that you mentioned, actually. The deal is that following John Lennon's assassination, I didn't even want to bring it up. I didn't even want to talk about it because it just made the guilt sit more heavily on my head and my shoulders. So I pretty much tried to keep it to myself. So I wasn't about to write the book then. And also, I was so busy after a while with my career working not just days, but nights and weekends and everything that I wouldn't have had time to write a book. So I kept waiting and years and years went by. And when I did start telling people about how I'd co-conducted John Lennon's last interview, everybody started saying, well, when are you writing your book? And I would just shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know. But as I say in my book, the answer is now. Here it is. So that's very exciting for me. Laurie, as a fellow Beatles and John Lennon fan, I want to thank you for writing the book. There's so much heart in it. And I love how all points in the book lead back to John. He's the true North, that fixed point that connects all the parts of your life. And it's beautifully done. And I can definitely relate to that because I have a similar feeling about Jimmy Page for various reasons. So let's hear it for our musical heroes. May they live long, if not in body, then in spirit. And thank you so much for writing the book and for talking to me about it. Thank you for talking to me. And thank you, John Lennon, for giving me the absolute best way to tell my life story and to bring up sex and drugs and <laughs> rock and roll, because I related to him every step of the way when I talked about them in my life. So very cool. I hope we get a lot of readers. I do too. The book is Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview, published by Fayetteville Mafia Press slash Tucker DS Press. It is available now. You can get it at TuckerDSPress.com, Amazon, and other retail websites. And many bookstores too. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you very much.
Baby, it was enjoyable. Oh yeah. Debbie, hope to uh, same time tomorrow. Maybe we'll see you in San Francisco. We'd love it. Thanks for tuning in, lit listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcast. Links in the show notes. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I really appreciate your support. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.